Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We're continuing our study. Activate. We are learning to put our faith into action. We started this study with the conclusion that faith works. Faith always works. Genuine saving faith is always accompanied by supporting works. And yet there are times, and this is very real in the life of every believer, in which we look at our lives and we say, I'm not sure if I see my faith working itself out in my life right now. So we've been asking the question for the past several weeks, and we're going to continue asking this question tonight. What do I do if my faith is not accompanied by works? What do I do? If I look at my life and I don't see my faith working out, how do I respond to that? And we've been working our way through a three-point outline for, for over a month now. What do I do? How do I respond if my faith is not accompanied by works? Well, the first thing that we saw when, when we answered that question is we're looking at three causes to examine when your faith doesn't work. The first possibility is that your soul is lost. Your soul is lost. Perhaps your faith isn't working because you don't actually really even have genuine saving faith. Perhaps your soul is lost. Well, the second cause that we looked at was perhaps your, your theology is incomplete. Perhaps you have a misunderstanding of sanctification. Perhaps you have the, the illustration we use. Perhaps you have your wires crossed and, and you're not thinking about sanctification right. And so you're misapplying the tools of sanctification that God has given you. Perhaps you have some misunderstandings about how sanctification works, about how the Holy Spirit works in you and how you strive in, the, in, in God's strength and how all of that works together. But tonight, we're going to dive into a third cause to examine, a third reason to look into when our faith doesn't work. A third reason, and we're going to find that this is true for literally every single one of us. third reason is your flesh is weak. Your flesh is weak. Three causes to examine when your faith doesn't work. Maybe your soul's lost. Maybe your theology's incomplete. But most certainly in every one of us, there's this truth that sometimes causes our faith not to work. Your flesh is weak. Your flesh is weak. As we've been communicating these truths over the last several weeks, we've been doing so with an illustration of taking you guys into a bathroom project in our house in which I've had, I've had lighting issues. And, and when, the, when the light in my bathroom wasn't working, there were several causes that I could look at. The first, first cause is maybe there was an issue with the switch. And we equated that to that first point. Perhaps your soul is lost. Maybe, maybe the switch is broken and you don't even have access to the power that turns the light on. Maybe you don't have access to, to, to faith that sanctifies us. Maybe you're not saved. Maybe the switch is just, it's, it's, it's off. It's not even working. But that's not true of everyone. I hope at least that there's, there's some here who, who are genuinely saved. The switch is just fine. And so a second place to look is, is in the junction box. And maybe you've gotten your wires crossed. Maybe you have uh, the, a positive connected to a negative when it shouldn't be. And, and, and you have a conflict. And it's causing problems. That's why your light isn't turning on because you've gotten wires crossed. We equated that to an incomplete understanding and a theology of sanctification. But assuming that those two are right, there's a third place you could look. And this will be illustrated where we are tonight. A third place that you could look in your error for when you have a light that's not turning on, and actually probably the most natural place that you would look, is at the light bulb. 
Like if you ever walk into a room and you turn on the light and it goes and it stops working, you probably don't start by digging into the wall, right? You'd be in trouble if you did. Hey, you make the assumption because 99% of the time, the light bulb just isn't working. So, well, probably have a bad light bulb. So I need to break down, I need to take out the light bulb, put in a new one. Light bulbs are odd. They're, they're, they're really interesting. I was looking into how light bulbs work today, and I had, I'd never looked into it before. Light bulbs are like fascinating things. They're uh, incredibly, incredibly fragile. Very vulnerable. Many of you have heard the, the story of Thomas Edison and how long it took him to develop uh, kind of the kind of light bulb that we have today. Tried over a thousand times and failed and failed and failed because there's so many variables in how a light bulb works. There's so many points for a light bulb to not work correctly. In, 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 a, in, a, in a normal light bulb that, that we have in our, in our ceilings, What's happening is there's an electrical current that's running into the bulb and that, that current runs up through some wires in the bulb and it goes up into the bulb that we see and there's, there's a little filament and that filament is a very specific metal. It's, it's tungsten and it's tungsten that's been ground down to just a hundredth of an inch thick. Uh, you, you, you couldn't see it if it were stretched out in a single line. But that tungsten is then wound and wound and wound and wound. And the reason that they use that specific metal is because tungsten can get incredibly hot without melting. And the goal, the, the way that a light works is the tungsten gets so hot that it gives off a glow. It gives off a glow, but it doesn't melt. And that's why the light bulb works. In, in a light bulb, what's actually happening is there's a little piece of metal that's heating up to almost 5,000 degrees. In every light bulb in your house, 5,000 degree little piece of metal. And it's so hot that it's glowing. It's giving off light. But that creates problems because when there's something that hot, if it meets oxygen, it turns into fire and it explodes, which is a problem in our homes. That's why Thomas Edison ran into so much trouble in, in, in what he created for, for the modern day light bulb. Because what has to happen inside of the light bulb is there has to be a vacuum. There can't be any oxygen. If, if the glass is cracked in any area and oxygen seeps in, that oxygen makes contact with the, with the 4,500 degree piece of tungsten and it ignites. And as soon as it ignites, the filament breaks and your light bulb can no longer work. So inside this light bulb is a vacuum where there's no air and there's, there's a non-flammable gas, an inert gas that's inserted into a light bulb. If any one of those things goes wrong, your light bulb won't work. And, and they are very fragile things. When you're handling a light bulb, you screw it in very carefully. If you knock it too hard, the filament will break and it won't work. If you drop it, the glass will shatter and you no longer have a vacuum in which the filament can give off light without turning into a flame. If the vacuum inside of the light bulb is, is broken in any place, the light bulb will not work. If anything inside of the, of the part that you screw in, if any, anything in there is wired incorrectly, the light bulb won't work. They're, they're vulnerable. And so we treat them very carefully. They're vulnerable and they're the thing that's most likely to break. Which is why when a light doesn't work, your first thought is I'll go change out the light bulb. Not I'm going to take the, the, the switch out of the wall and dissect that. Just assume that thing is weak. That thing is vulnerable. That thing is by far the most likely thing to break in the whole wiring structure. So I'll deal with that. In uh, Matthew chapter 26, where we're going to find ourselves tonight, and, and just, to, just to open this up, you don't need to turn there. Jesus 
refers to us much like a light bulb in this scenario. He's looking at his disciples and he tells them, your, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is so vulnerable. Your flesh is so, so weak. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 41, we're going to use this verse as a launching pad for where we're going to be for the next several months or weeks or months. Matthew 26, 41. Jesus looks to his disciples and he says, keep watching and keep praying so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That verse is in the final 24 hours of Jesus' life. He says these words in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you may remember the scene where Jesus brings his disciples along with him. And, and he's going, it's, it's the last evening of his life, he's going into the garden to pray. And he knows that attackers are going to be coming, that, that, that are going to carry him away. He knows Judas is coming. And he, and he looks to his disciples, and he knows that they're about to enter into probably the most trying 24 hours of their entire lives. He looks at the disciples, and he says these words. Keep watching and keep praying. Why? Why does he call them to watch and pray? Does he say, keep watching and keep praying so, so that you can stand guard well and they don't come and take me? Keep watching and keep praying so, so that you aren't attacked? No, Jesus' concern is spiritual. Jesus' concern with his disciples in these hours is that they would fall into temptation. Jesus' concern in these hours is that his disciples would be tempted towards sin. And so he gives them, from the very voice of God, advice on how to avoid temptation. Jesus says, I don't want you to fall into sin. I don't want you to fall into temptation. So here's what you need to do, disciples. You need to keep watching and you need to keep praying so that you do not fall into temptation. You know why they need to keep watching? Why they need to keep praying? Because they're so vulnerable. They're so weak. Their intentions may be good. They may desire to do what is right in these final hours of Jesus' life. But their flesh is weak. So Jesus says, I know that your intentions are to do what is right, but your flesh is weak. So watch out and pray with desperation that you won't fall into temptation. Keep your guard up and continue to ask God that he would keep you from temptation. In those words, I believe Jesus is giving his disciples a strategy for resisting temptation. And I believe that that strategy is still true today. We're going to launch from those words into several weeks of study into how you and I can avoid temptation. When Jesus says the flesh is weak, he's referring to its tendency to sin. He's referring to our natural tendency to not obey what our desires may, call, may, may draw us to obey. We may desire to do the right thing, but our flesh is weak. And so we're like, Paul, so often we don't. I want to do this, but, but I don't do it. Why is that? Paul's wrestling with that. Why? A wretched man that I am. Why, the things I want to do, I don't do them. And the things I want to do, I, 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 it's the opposite of whatever I want. 
because his flesh was weak. It's because your flesh is weak. My flesh is weak. We're bent against the ways of God. I'm going to zoom out for just a minute. If there's times when you see your faith not being turned into action, I, I want us all to be aware that this is true of every one of us. Our flesh is weak. In fact, I would venture to say that if you're not seeing your faith turned into action, this is the most likely cause. Because every human has weak flesh. And you will have weak flesh until the day you die. Now, my fear in saying that is that you would say, okay, I don't see my faith turned into action, but it's probably just this. My, my soul is probably saved. Now, go through the list that we've talked through. Check and evaluate to see whether or not your soul is saved. You need to go through that process. We talked about that several weeks ago. If you, you want to revisit how to, how to think through that, how do I examine myself, you can go back and listen to that sermon online. That's, that's, that's available for you because you, we need to do that. We need to evaluate to, to ensure that we're, that we're saved. But we do so with the awareness that our flesh is weak. Jesus knows that about his disciples. He knows that about you. Believe in this verse, there is a strategy for how we can avoid temptation. Now, there are times when temptation cannot be avoided. There are times when you are surprised by temptation, when you did not see it coming, when it blindsides you and you find yourself in a battle, in a fight. But that doesn't have to always be the case. The word of God equips us for how we fight temptation when we're in a battle with it. We're gonna talk about that in coming weeks. Tonight, we're gonna focus on what happens before then. We're gonna focus on how to avoid temptation altogether. How do I avoid the fight? Knowing that my flesh is weak, I don't want to get into the fight because I'm vulnerable. I'm not strong. I'm prone to sin. So how do I avoid temptation? That's what Jesus is equipping his disciples for here. Watch and pray. We're going to title this tonight, a term that I use a lot. I picked up on this term uh, early on in college and it's, 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 been something that's kind of stuck with me is something that I try to keep in my mind all the time. Keeping your head on a swivel is what we're going to title this. Keeping your head on a swivel. That's a term that stuck in my head uh, when, I, when I first started playing football. Uh, I, was, I, was, I was in my first game and uh, I remember being in a position where there was, there was a, a runner coming at me with the ball. I was playing defensive back. There was a runner coming at me with the ball. And in my mind, I'm thinking I'm about to record my first, my first tackle. The runner's coming at me. He's coming at me fast. He's bigger than me. And I'm thinking I got to go low on this guy. And so I lock onto him and I, and I, and I break my hips down and, I, and I'm ready to deliver a hit. I'm just waiting for him to come to me. And it seemed like minutes as, as this guy's running at me and I'm waiting for this collision but when he's still about 10 feet away from me, I never saw it coming. But, but another player came from, 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 my, from my left side and he, he hit me so hard. I was, I was horizontal in midair. He, I got decleated is the term that we use. My cleats were no longer on the ground. I got hit as hard as I'd ever gotten hit in my life. 
And, and, and I kind of like, I was a little bit dazed. I kind of hobbled over to the sideline to my coach. And he gave me these words of advice. I'll never forget them. They apply to so much of life. Keep your head on a swivel. What he was telling me was when you're in the position where you're ready to make a tackle, what you have to remember is that there's 10 other people that are coming to take you out. And if you're locked into the guy that you're trying to tackle, you're going to get blindsided. So you have to keep your head turning. You have to keep your head looking left and right. You have to keep your head as if it's a swivel chair. It never stops moving. It's great advice, not just for sports, but for life. It's a great strategy for awareness. Keep your head on a swivel. We could break down Jesus' words that he's giving to his disciples right here in this passage. His disciples, don't lock in. Keep your head on a swivel. Keep looking around. Watch out. Because there are attackers coming from every direction and you are weak. So watch out. Keep your guard up. Keep your head on a swivel. I'm so convinced that so many of us in the battle with temptation don't even realize that we're being tempted until it's far too late. Temptation is everywhere around you. It's everywhere around you. But so many of us aren't ready for it when it hits us. So many of us don't have our guard up. So many of us don't have our heads on a swivel. So many of us are not heeding the words of Jesus to watch and pray so that you do not enter into temptation. In James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, James makes the argument that temptation leads to desires in us. We're tempted and we desire something. Those desires lead us to sin. You follow his connection. What he's saying is temptation always leads to sin. I want us to understand something very important, and that is that sin is always preceded by temptation. Sin is always preceded by temptation. Let me me say that another way. You have never sinned when you were not tempted first. Temptation is ultimately what gives birth to sin. Sin is always preceded by temptation. You have not ever sinned when you were not tempted first. Now, you may hear that and think, that's not been my experience. And that's exactly the point. See, I would imagine if you can look back on your day or on your week that you could find certain times when you sinned, when there was sin in your life, when you weren't godly. But can you think back on your day and see the temptation that preceded that sin? Can you think back on the week and pinpoint the moments in which you felt temptation? My guess is, if you're anything like me, you can remember times when you've sinned, but often we sinned without seeing the temptation coming. And that's a problem. 
Because sin is always preceded by temptation. And so, in our strategy for avoiding temptation, what we need to train ourselves to do is see temptation coming. It's visible. Sure, there may be times when we're blindsided, but our job is to keep our head on the swivel, to keep looking around to see temptation coming before it ever hits us. Do you see temptation coming? Tonight, we're going to focus on the first half of Jesus' command to his disciples. He says, watch and pray. We're going to look at what he means by watch. Look out. Keep your guard up. Keep your head on a swivel. We need to know what to watch for. And that's how we're going to break this down tonight. Two threats to watch out for. Two threats to watch out for. I'm keeping my head on a swivel. I'm trying to avoid temptation. What am I looking for? What threats am I trying to perceive? There's two threats to watch for as we seek to avoid temptation. Number one, the enemy's lies. Avoid the enemy's lies. Watch out for the lies of the enemy. Ecclesiastes tells us that there is nothing new under the sun. Everything's just on repeat. The same pleasures, the same desires, the same sins. Solomon's the wisest man ever, says, Everything under the sun, it's all the same. There's nothing new. He says that with kind of specifically in his mind, he's, he's talking about the futility of life and the repetitiveness of sin and how everything is vanity. There's nothing new under the sun. It's true. It's true not just in regards to things that we enjoy. It's true in regards to the way our enemy works. There's nothing new under the sun. Satan is working the same way he's always worked. He's attacking people the same way he's always attacked them. Sure, there may be some new things here and there that are, that are modes of how he's attacking us, but it's still the same sin. It's still the same lies. It's still the same attacks. There's nothing new under the sun. And because that's true, we can look into biblical history and learn about how we are going to be attacked. We read Genesis chapter 3 earlier because that's a very informative story in how Satan attacks. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the story of the serpent and Eve. In this story, we start to get a glimpse of how Satan lies. Satan is titled the father of lies. And any time that we're faced with sin, in one sense, we're faced with a lie that we choose to believe or to disbelieve. How Satan lies in Genesis chapter 3 is indicative of exactly how he's lying to us today. And I want us to see what he says to Eve to tempt her to fall. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Crazy verse, massive verse in which 
a serpent walks or crawls or slithers up to a woman, however they moved at that time, and he starts talking to her. And we're not told anything about that, which is just mind-boggling to me. The serpent walks up to Eve, starts talking, and Moses, who wrote this, doesn't see any need to comment on that. He's just like, the serpent just walked up and started talking. He might as well have walked up to Eve and been like, what's up? And Eve, just, Eve starts talking to the serpent. Well, the most surprising thing in this verse is not that there's a serpent talking, as mind-boggling as that is. It's not the most significant thing in this chapter. It's not the most significant thing in this verse. The most amazing thing that's happening in this verse is that Satan begins to question God. That's the first way that Satan lies. Temptation questions God. Satan in verse 1 looks to Eve and he says, Has God indeed said? Never in the history of the world had those words been uttered. Has God really said that you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? That's the question that the serpent poses to Eve. And when he does so, he's not making any statement about what God has said, not yet. All he's doing is he's looking to place doubt in Eve's mind. God clearly said, we don't have time to look tonight, but in Genesis chapter 2, God clearly said, don't eat of the tree. Satan comes along and he says, are you sure that God said that? Here's why he did that. In Genesis chapter 2, Eve had not yet been created. When God gave that command to Adam, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden, Eve wasn't there, and she had to take Adam's word for it. And so Satan begins to insert doubt into her head. Are you sure God said that? You weren't actually there. Has God really said that you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? He questions God. Well, Eve is well-versed in what God said. She immediately responds. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. She knows what God said. Adam taught her well. The serpent then quickly responds, and in his response, we see a second strategy, a second threat within the enemy's lies. In Satan's response, he contradicts God. He goes further than his initial questioning of God, and now when he recognizes that Eve knows exactly what God says, he goes from questioning God and inserting doubt into her mind to contradicting God. Look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. That is a direct contradiction. God said in Genesis 2, these words, you will surely die. The serpent looked at Eve and he said, you will surely not die. The exact opposite of what God said. The serpent contradicted God. He went from inserting doubt into her mind to calling God a liar. As the serpent then continues to talk, we see a third attempt. Temptation qualifies God. Temptation qualifies God. He has directly contradicted God, and now he begins to explain. Now he begins to reason as to why God is a liar. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, 
your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's a fascinating strategy by the serpent. He paints God as the bad guy in this picture. That God is trying to hide something from Eve and he feeds her this half-truth where he says, if you eat of this, you will be like God. Which is partially true, but incredibly misleading. It's like you, you guys watch TV and you see commercials in which there's, there's we call, they call them celebrity endorsements, where you have athletes or, or certain public figures that are using a product, and, and, and the idea is if you use this product, you're like this athlete. So you have, you have like LeBron James, who, who, who wears the beats, or he has the shoes, or you got Steph Curry with the deodorant, and you got uh, Kevin Durant with, with Sprint and, and whatever. And, and the thought is like, these guys use it, use it, and you'll be like them. Well, yeah, but not really. Like if I put on LeBron James shoes, I can't dunk, right? Like my, my human limitations, are, that's exactly what Satan does. He says, eat of the apple, you'll be like God. In a sense, yeah, you eat of the apple and you'll have a new awareness of, of, of good and evil, but you're not going to be like God. It's a lie. He's, he's giving her a half-truth, but it's a bait-and-switch. So, so he qualifies God. He starts to, to reason and give explanation for why God is misleading Eve. And in doing so, he reveals himself to be a liar. This is exactly how temptation functions today. In the moment of temptation, you are facing a lie. You are facing a questioning of God or a contradiction of God or a qualification of God. You may see an opportunity to, tempt, to, to, to sin. You may see an opportunity to enter temptation and you may think it will satisfy. That's a lie. You, you may think it's worth it. That's a lie. You may think it doesn't matter. That's a lie. You may think it won't impact anyone. It's not a big deal. It's a lie. Temptation at its core is a lie from the father of lies. In the moment of temptation, you are facing a lie. That then leads to this principle. If we know that temptation comes in the form of a lie, How can we prepare ourselves to respond? How can we prepare ourselves to watch? How can we prepare ourselves to avoid? You cannot recognize the enemy's lies if you do not know the truth of God's word. You won't know what a lie is if you don't know what the truth is. You cannot watch out for the lies of temptation if you don't know what God's word says. Students, if you want to avoid temptation, you must know your Bible. Study it. Read it. Memorize it. Write it down. Know the word. Because it's only in a knowledge of the word that we can expose what's a lie. 
Because Satan's going to come and he's going to tempt us and he's going to do that by asking this question. Has God really said this? He's in temptation going to say, God did not say that. He's going to contradict God. He's going to qualify God. He's going to question God. That's how temptation works. But you won't recognize those lies because it doesn't come to us in the form of a serpent. It comes to us through our desires. It comes to us because we want it. It comes to us because our flesh is weak. And so we must know the word if we're to expose the lies. Satan may try to tell you you're immune from temptation. God will tell you if anyone thinks he stands, watch out. Take heed lest he fall. Temptation may tell you that you're alone in your temptation. You're the only one dealing with it. You're on an island. God will tell you like he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. There's nothing new under the sun. The Satan only has three tools to tempt you with. Temptation may tell you that you can't resist sin. You don't have the strength. God will tell you that there is no temptation that will ever come to you that he will not give you the power to resist. But you cannot expose those lies if you do not know those promises. That's why we're so prone to believe that we can't resist temptation or that we're alone in our problem or that we're immune from temptation. They're lies. But unless we know the truth, we will not expose them. We're going to wrap up this verse with a final point. Two threats to watch out for. First, the enemy's lies. Second, your own desires. Watch out second for your own desires. Eve was drawn into temptation by the lies of the enemy. But do you know why she took the bait? She took it because she wanted it. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it its fruit and she ate. She gave also to her husband with her and he ate. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, we're told this. All that is in the world is this. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. These are not from the Father, they're from the world. Those are the three tools that Satan has. Those are the three things that he attacks you with. Those are your three fundamental desires. All that is in the world is boiled down to that. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Let me prove it to you. Look at verse 6. The woman looks at the fruit and she saw that the tree was good for food. It's the lust of the eyes. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. Excuse me, the first one is the lust of flesh. The second was a delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. And third, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. 
She wanted to be wiser. It was desirable to her. It's the pride of life. Satan has been using those three tools since the very first temptation. So watch out, not only for the lies of the enemy, but watch out for you. Because your own desires will lead you into temptation. And those desires are broken down to the desires of your eyes, the desires of your flesh, and the desires of your heart. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Be aware that those are in you. Be suspicious of that which is within you. Watch out. I'm close with this verse. Peter uses the exact same terminology that Jesus did in Matthew chapter 26. He says, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Those two statements by Peter are this. Watch out. Keep your head on a swivel. Be sober, be alert. How alert do I need to be? How sober do I need to be? How watchful do I need to be? So watchful that it's as if a lion is tracking you down. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When Peter says, watch out, he raises it to the level of watch out as if you're being tracked down by a lion. As if your life is on the line, keep your guard up. If there were somewhere in this church a lion looking for someone to eat and we're just all out there running around, your caution would be high. You'd have your head on a swivel. You'd be defensive. You'd be ready to run. That's the terminology that Peter uses. Watch out because there's a lion. And he wants to devour you. So keep your guard up. Because the flesh is so weak. The flesh is weak. Watch out. Watch for temptation so that you can avoid it. But where we're going to go in future weeks is not just avoiding it. Because we know that there's times when temptation is unavoidable. And so watch for temptation so that you may avoid it. And for that which is unavoidable that you may be prepared. If you see an attack coming, you can prepare yourself.